Welcome to the Sunday Morning Likes Review. This is episode 321. We didn't come up with a show title, but I suggest 127001. Stay 127001. <laughs> yeah. Good old local host. Stay local host. <laughs> That's right. This is Tony Bemis. Jay LaCroix. Bill Parada. And Tom Lawrence. So, um, if you can't tell from the audio quality, we are all in the comforts of our own homes in our own offices with our headsets on and we're hanging out on Zoom. Initially, we had the awesome idea to run our own Jitsi server, you know, for the nerd cred. And I've had Jitsi set up on um, a Linode VPS. Uh, I went the easy route and just use their canned Docker environment. I put all of that behind an Nginx reverse proxy, got myself a nice Let's Encrypt cert, and then found out that it was the slowest possible thing. I'm talking like it would take a, up to a minute to even finish establishing the TLS connection and downloading all of the JavaScript on my phone, via Wi-Fi, off my uh, off of Wi-Fi on just LTE, um, on various laptops, and I so badly wanted to have this all on this free open source software recording this meeting instead of Zoom, but it was just too slow. I'm not blaming Jitsi. I'm blaming something that I did. I'm just, I'm just some noob admin who fumbles his way through life and computers, hmm. but we're on Zoom right now. So... We'll figure it out as we go. Send it to me. What have we all been doing? It has been a very long time since we've last recorded a show. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's been quite a lot. So who wants to go first? How about <laughs> Let me you begin. Can. Yeah. Oh boy, just had to had to let the can open a can with that one. So um, I'll, I'll get the boring stuff out of the way first and I'll make this the shortest part. So obviously, you know, work, my day job has been extremely busy uh, lately. And, you know, I'm happy to be busy, especially with what's going on right now. Happy to have a job. So you know, definitely not complaining, but, you know, a lot of work is a lot of work. And I was going through a lot of work. But um, what's more interesting to our listeners is my fixation on Home Lab lately. So if you don't already know, Home Lab just refers to running your own servers, just, you know, self-hosted, just taking control of your own environments, your own servers, your own applications, and just, you know, you call the shots. And the only problem is, of course, if it breaks, you get to keep both pieces and it's up to you to fix it. But it's, it's a very fun thing. And it started, and I think you guys might remember this, when I was last talking about my power bill being about $300. Yeah, and I, I wanted to that. find out. Yeah, I wanted to find out. Like I, I thought it was my servers because they're the loudest thing in the house. And generally speaking, when you're dealing with electricity, the loudest thing in your house is probably what's eating up your bill. What I, you know, found out is that it had nothing to do with my servers. My I calculated everything, found the formula. My servers might be costing me fifteen dollars a month at most. It's really not that much money. Um, mm. Certainly not. Certainly a small part of the three hundred dollars. But it opened a can of worms though, because now I'm kind of looking into, okay, what's the most power efficient hardware? What's the quietest hardware? What are some alterations I can make in my home lab, in my, my home server rack, if you will. And the past couple of months, it's completely transformed. I mean, I started off with 
two Dell R610s, a R710, and a T410 on my, my rack. The T410 was only up when I was actually using it as just a test server. So we'll just say we had, I had three. And now um, I was, I'm experimenting with the concept of Raspberry Pi 4 as a server rack. So How's that going? it's going really well. So I'm doing two experiments in parallel. So that one is, I have a Docker, actually I meant to say a Kubernetes cluster running on Raspberry Pi 4. So there's two, excuse me, four Pi 4s. One of them is the Kubernetes master. And if you don't already know, Kubernetes is, is a um, container orchestration software that takes the concept of a container runtime like Docker and gives you the ability to orchestrate it or make sure that you know things are up and things are running. It, it adds a layer on top of that. So one of the pies is a, you know, is the master and then three of them are the workers. And it's actually going very well. I haven't actually moved anything production over to it yet. I did a video on it. I have uh, FreeNAS uh, with an NFS share as the data store backend. So the Pi, well, the Pi nodes all connect to that. That's where the stateful data is. And right now I'm running software called The Lounge. Have you guys heard of that? No. No. It's, it's, a, um, it's basically Quassel without the uh, KDE. It's a web-hosted IRC bouncer kind of thing. So. You, you basically install it and you can connect to your IRC chats and have it there in a browser session, but you can host it and connect to it. And, you know, when you want to chat with your buddies on IRC or your favorite chat rooms, you just go on there and you just start chatting. And so regardless of what phone you're using, computer, whatever it is, it's the same. You've got the same chat history. And so, it's pretty cool. So basically, yep, go ahead. So does it keep like a, a persistent connection and then you just get to see it from whatever connection you connect in it from? Mm -hmm. Exactly. From, yeah. So yeah. you have one thing connected to your IRC chats and any computer is a client. So you just That's open cool. it up in a browser and then you're, you're on your chat. I just thought it'd be something fun to host. And that's the only thing I have running right now. And it's super fast. Like the, it was very challenging for me to get across the Kubernetes networking thing because when you run Kubernetes in Linode, DigitalOcean, Google Cloud, or AWS, whatever your flavor of cloud provider is, they abstract the load balancer part for you. So you don't have to figure that out, right? You just, you just have an entry point and they take care of the other stuff. But when you run Kubernetes in your home lab, you have to take care of the networking yourself. You have to either make your own web browser, or I mean load balancer, to direct how the traffic gets routed to containers inside the cluster. And it, as much as I hate to say it, it took me several days to really wrap my head around it because there's like four or five or maybe more different ways you can attack that. And they each have downsides. So I'm not gonna, you know, that's a long story made short. I'm, I'll uh, leave that there. I figured it out and it, it does work. Now that I have it figured out, it's time to start running some containers. Now, because it's a Pi, uh, you know, most, containers are basically built for x86. So if the container is an x86 container, it's not going to run in your Pi. So linuxserver.io, if you go there on that website, there's a ginormous amount of things that you can run in a container. If you go to that site and look at all the different stuff that they have there, uh, most of the ones I looked at, I didn't look at all of them, they all supported the ARM platform for Pi, so they'll all work. 
So if I run the lounge from the official Docker container from their site, it's going to fail because it's made for x86. But if I run the version from linuxserver.io, it'll work because they do have a version for ARM mm. and it, it does work. So that's how that, that does work. So the power usage of the Pi platform is very small because I don't know if a lot of people realize this. You know, I love Linode. They're a sponsor of my YouTube channel. But it, I mean, if you get a droplet or a DPS for $5 a month, I mean, you get like uh, one core, I think two gigs of RAM, if I'm not mistaken. You could buy a Raspberry Pi 4 that has four cores and four gigs of RAM. And it's yours. You don't have to pay $5 a month for your Raspberry Pi. And it, it, it you know, destroys the performance of a very cheap DPS. And you can make your money back. Uh, $5 a month in just uh, you know half a year or less. So if you think about it, hosting your website on a Raspberry Pi 4 could be more cost effective than running it off of VPS. But again, you have to deal with the security. So that's what, so I'm looking at the container side of things because now I have a cluster and the containers can run across the cluster. And if I get to a point where it slows down, I could just add another Raspberry Pi, add another worker node and scale it out. And that's, I'm still at the beginning phase. It's probably something as the podcast goes on, I'll just talk about my progress with that. Now, in parallel to that, I decided to build a new FreeNAS server and a new Proxmox server. I wanted to go super low energy. And what I come up with, I already have one video on my YouTube channel, LearnLinux.tv. Um, the FreeNAS one is up. It's 55 watts. It has a super micro motherboard. It has four Seagate, I forgot the, the brand name, the one that's for NAS, I forgot the name of it. Um, but, but it's basically, I want to say 12 terabytes of storage. So four drives in a RAID Z2. And so it's a full featured, I'm not skimping on features here. I mean, this is every bit is, is full performant. In fact, it, the performance is better than the R710 that I had it on. And it's 55 watts. That's insane to me. It's, it's super low. That one has a Xeon, no, not a Xeon. It's an eight-core Atom CPU, which is more than enough. It has 16 gigs of ECC RAM. So it, it's got that. And the video that's coming out in a, probably a couple of weeks or less is Proxmox. I do the same thing. But this time, I go for a motherboard, also eight cores, but it's an AMD Epic. And that one also runs at about 55 watts. So you add everything up. I put a kilowatt meter, my entire rack, which consists now of a Proxmox virtualization server, a FreeNAS server, a Kubernetes cluster running on Raspberry Pi, four other Raspberry Pis, one of which is running Home Assistant because I'm going crazy in home automation. So that's why not if I don't have enough to do. All of that, the highest I've ever seen it hit is 160 watts for the entire rack. And that's even including the Unify switch. That's including the cable modem, um, everything. It, and that's like less than a third, I think, of what my rack used to use all the time. So it's definitely orders of magnitude lower. Now, the elephant in the room is I spent way more money on all this stuff than I could ever possibly save with the electric bill in a very long time. So, you know, um, I, I wasted a bunch of money, but it was fun. So I'm not sorry. So sorry, not sorry. It was a great project. So that's really what's been utilizing a lot of my time. And the home lab videos on my YouTube channel have been very popular. So I know a lot of people seem to be interested in this kind of thing. And it's very empowering to run your own infrastructure 
I think that uh, makes people feel good that they can do that. And being in control of your infrastructure could be um, a very rewarding experience. So that's been my obsession for at least three or four months now. That's awesome. Yeah, you did a lot of work. I'm going to call out a prediction here. And I'm seeing cloud creep where so many people are seeing how much the cloud costs and the fact that there's been price increases that this type of thing is going to become more and more popular, whether you're standing it up in a colo or because you are a larger company and have your own larger, you know, mini data center in your back room. Uh, but we're seeing, I, I've talked to a couple of people that have run into this where they said the, the bill came is basically been, and it prompted a discussion like this costs a lot. <laughs> so um, it suddenly didn't, yeah. doesn't seem as cost effective to put it in the cloud. Uh, I hear people telling me, you know, they, they started seeing their bills go up to like 50, 60,000 a month. And they're like, at some point we can build our own data center. Matter of fact, we can build two of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what I find with the cloud, the major contention with price is storage. Yep. That's, yeah, that's the most expensive. And my biggest pet peeve of IT in general is the mindset that's, you know, when an, an entry level IT person learns to use a hammer, everything becomes a nail. They want to use their new solution that they're proud of learning for everything, even where it doesn't make sense. And now they're moving their company's physical file server into the cloud with 20 terabytes of data. And, you know, they get the bill and everybody looks at it cross-eyed and doesn't look so attractive, does it? But one thing I'll mention, though, it's that kind of was surprising to me is you go to Dell's website. I mean, they're still selling PowerEdge servers. And don't get me wrong, they're great. But this motherboard... Uh, both of them from super micro, super low power, but I, I would expect the performance to go down too. My Proxmox server, and I'm not a, a uh, benchmark kind of guy because I don't really know what terminology I'm supposed to use for this. I want to say Passmark or something like that. My R610s were each, were, I think the performance score is like 4,000 or whatever the number is. And my low power server is 11,000 it blows the R610 completely out of the water. And to make it even better, I put a uh, M2 uh, SSD on there for the storage, one terabyte. So I got I have one terabyte of SSD storage with a CPU score of whatever word I'm supposed to use of 11,000 versus four. And the power usage, it's like I'm living in some other timeline from like 10 years from now or something that it, we're able to do so much power and so, so much, you know, CPU power and so little energy. You may have mentioned this already, but what kind of processor do you have in that box? So the processors on these boards are built in. That's a good thing and a bad thing because if the CPU goes, everything goes. If the motherboard goes, everything goes. That's, that's bad. But I was okay with that. I understood that risk. So in the, in the FreeNAS server, the built-in CPU is an eight-core Atom, and I went with that specifically because, what I, from what I've read, if you go with the cheaper one, that's four cores, it shares the bus in such a way with all the other components that the um, performance will nosedive. It'll be actually less, less powerful than a four-core would normally be. So the eight core doesn't have the same bus sharing with all the components, so I didn't need eight cores. I just didn't want the performance penalty. So that's a, an Intel Atom. And from what I've researched, there's like a 2000 series, like the model number is like a Atom 2000 or something like that. Avoid it because there's some kind of bug where it'll brick the motherboard within a year from what I've read. Um, 
and I can't confirm or deny that's true, but when reviews and people are claiming that you know the word brick is involved, I'm just going to avoid it by default. And yeah, I'm not going to spend my money to have something brick within a year. Yeah, exactly. True, but they put that mod like you can you can run this problem if you found one used, but if you bought one new, they haven't sold it in a long time. There was a run of them that had the problem. So I would avoid those models on the used market, but as far as the new market goes, they still make that four core one that doesn't have the flaw. Gotcha. I went with the 3000 series just to be safe. Um, that's what I have. And as far as everybody is aware, there's no such issue. So that's the FreeNAS server. And then the built-in CPU with the Proxmox server is an AMD Epic. I wanna say it's 3251 is the model, if I'm not mistaken. So that it's, it's built right into the motherboard. So just basically pop the motherboard in, put some memory in there. It has 128 gigs of RAM on the Proxmox server. I went all out. Um, 12, 128 gigs of ECC RAM with a terabyte of M2 storage. It's It flies. It's awesome. Um, it costs a decent amount of money. But again, sorry, not sorry. I had fun. But uh, yeah. It, it's it's great. Um, you know, I don't really recommend everybody just pour a bunch of money into this like I did. Probably a bad idea, but um, that a buzz. Okay, yeah. So I heard a a buzzing sound. Can you guys hear me? Oh, yeah. That was probably on my end. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. I didn't know if it was my microphone. So, yeah, lots of home lab stuff, and and that goes to my YouTube channel too because I've I've been trying to get as much of that into my videos as I can. So you'll already see the FreeNAS build on there now. The uh, Proxmox server build is not up yet, but I imagine within two weeks I'll have it up. Very cool. That, that, that Proxmox and Epic, trust me, you'll get a lot of views. Any of the AMD video builds I've done, they, they skyrocket on views. Freenas just shared it today. Actually, I was surprised. Like, 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 actual Freenas on Twitter. They shared my videos. Like, oh yay! Freenas noticed it. Cool. Um, fanboy moment. <laughs> no, uh, tag them in your tweets. Trust me, they'll retweet you. I know the media people there really well, so they're, they're great. I was half expecting them to actually reply and say, "You idiot! Why did you go with this hardware? That's a horrible choice." You know, because sometimes when you know, people are so passionate about things. They, they yeah. really feel like, like the way they want to do it is better. And, and honestly, I, I love the way I did it, but I kind of expected some constructive criticism, so to speak. But, um, you know, that seems to have gone well so far. That's Other than the fact that I called it NBME in my video, and apparently it's not, but we're not going to talk about that. Yeah. There's <laughs> always mm-hmm. someone that will catch you on some detail. Uh, so I've had some fun. And I'm looking at my phone real quick. You're never wrong. Yeah, another wrong with fun. It says, uh, my software update is complete. My car just rebooted. Because, <laughs> you know, it's 2020 and your car sometimes has to reboot when you're, you get a software update, which makes me happy, though. Hopefully I don't, not while you're driving. Not, well, no, yeah, it won't let you update <laughs> while you're driving. But <laughs> it does warn you, like, this will take 25 minutes. Blah, blah, blah. Usually takes about 10, but it gives you all the warnings. You cannot use your car for the next 25 minutes. So why are you late for work? Oh, sorry, my my car had to do a software update before I could drive up here. 
Yeah, my favorite way to reboot my Tesla, is, well, not only way not uh, to reboot it really, is you press the two buttons on the steering wheel and you hold the brake down a few seconds and it tells the car it's rebooting. And I'm like, I can reboot my car. It's like all control mm-hmm. delete, but it's it's brake button button. <laughs> mm-hmm. They anyway, call it the three finger salute on Windows. What do we call it on Tesla? Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of the same thing. It's uh, two fingers and a foot. <laughs> hmm. So. New XCPNG server. I also did some upgrades at the office. Um, we ordered uh, from our favorite vendor, Tech Supply Direct. We, need, we decided those old servers to run our enterprise company were probably, they, they all worked, but they were old. And one of the things that surprised me so much is the new server being so much faster. I think the CPU score is like 25 or 26,000. Like you said, there's lies, damn lies, and benchmarks. So I don't really hold a lot of water to them. But it's you know a modern DDR4 machine, 120 gigs of RAM. But we went with the Dell with the 12 gig SAS backplane. The speed on this thing is insane. It's uh, got 12. It's got four SSDs and a RAID 10 uh, SAS SSDs. Uh, the Seagate Nitro's in there. But the other surprising part is with all the VMs, everything migrated over, like production running. It's like 110 watts now. It's 100 watts less than some of the previous servers, and it's so substantially faster. So it, it's also like a combination of things. Like newer servers just seem to use a lot less wattage. So I think that's a big piece of it. Um, you know, they got better. They have like platinum-rated power supplies, so they have a much higher efficiency, et cetera. So that went really well. So I have some videos on that. Um, I need to do some more follow-ups and the people from the developers from Bitwarden reached out to me just to thank me for my video. They actually want to use parts of my video in their own marketing. And I said, if they asked for my permission, I gave it to them. And uh, they said they'll fully give me credit and a link back to my website. But the video has gone really well for my review of the self-hosted Bitwarden and my personal view. Uh, I did it like two months ago. We switched to it. My staff grumbled about it at first, but now they love it. Um, self-hosted Bitwarden, they're like, this is just easier. It, I, it has features more similar to the commercial version of LastPass, um, where if I share something to the group, so to speak, you don't have to have anyone accept the share. I just add or change a password to share, and everyone always has it instantly. There's no pause. There's no accept. Um, that's worked out really well. It's actually made our workflow better because we have to share so many client passwords all the time. So for a client password management system for the shared part, it's awesome. For the individual users using it, it's been excellent. The only questionable feature, and uh, I want to see the look on Phil's face because we're doing this over webcam, they actually have the feature where your 2FA, like the codes you put in for your phone where you scan the QR codes, you can put them right into Bitwarden. So you're kind of breaking 2FA because... You can have it have your username, password, and it'll fill in the um, rolling numbers for the 2FA. I choose not to do that, but I choose not to do that either. I mean, that's it. Could do that. It's kind of cool. I don't want to do it. I like having my two distinct, separate. Yes, that's how we. That's that was my uh, decision. Now I have used it though because a lot of times I got to set demo accounts for my YouTube videos. And because they're just demo and dummy accounts that I know I'm going to purge later, it's convenient so I don't have to scan them with my QR thing and have on my phone. I do save those in there. It's just really cool when you hit the pull down because it shows you the rolling numbers and they're counting down just like they are on my phone when you add them in. It's just novel to me that it has it built in, but it feels like a security risk because, well, if someone gets in Bitwarden, now they have everything they need in one place. So... 
Yeah, but I still, it's a cool feature. Maybe for home users, they're at least using 2FA and it, it's still better than nothing. And you do protect your Bitwarden with 2FA. So for home users, maybe it, it might be a good thing. But for security conscious people, like many, many of our listeners and uh, all of you, I, I'm going to say no and put it in there. And if my staff's decision is no, it doesn't go in there. <laughs> but yeah. it does work really well. I, I'm super happy with it as a product and everything else. Um, I've been using that uh, Bitwarden for about a year uh, for personal use, and I love it. Uh, I, I use LastPass at my day job, leather uh, business product. I don't like it. I don't like the interface. It's just it's clunky, and the interface in Bitwarden, I think it's great. I think they did a cleaner job on the interface. Um, and what my staff had done because they were using LastPass personally and having to switch between accounts. They this they, like they said they've got like. Only a handful of personal websites they go to, um, but they said they didn't like have to switch back and forth. So they were thrilled with Bitwarden because now they still have LastPass for their personal use, and Bitwarden is strictly business for them. So, um, and putting it, we don't have it publicly exposed. We keep it behind a VPN, and that leads into I had to get a self. Uh, you know, if you have a self-signed cert, you have some problems with Bitwarden with self-signed certs. It really wants a cert, but I didn't want to publicly expose it, and it's built-in cert manager. Uh, uses the ACME web protocol, so it has to expose a port. Well, HA proxy on PFSense saves you from all that. So you do Let's Encrypt with the ACME protocol using um, the DNS API. So you have your, you know, many, many sites support this. I'm using um, DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean, put a domain in there. You issue a wildcard cert, then you HA proxy everything. And then the part that I thought was the weirdest on here, and I have this covered in a series of videos I did on this, is in DigitalOcean, I pointed all those names like bitwarden.lawrencesystem.com. I put uh, private IP addresses for the A records. Now, what happens is when they're at home, because they don't pull from the company DNS when they VPN in, all the DNS entries work from home. Because when they VPN in, the private IP addresses are pulled from the public web and they land all in the right servers as long as they're VPNed in. <laughs> and it works great. That's awesome. I I never might thought talk about and it just worked. I, might, I was gonna say I might talk about this offline, but I and, and Phil, you're aware of this because we were working on it. I still have not been able to get uh, Let's Encrypt and PFSense to to work at all with Linode as the the provider. It'll always say the DNS uh, domain does not exist, even though it does. And um, they fixed some bugs. You know, Phil, you did. You actually put in a yeah, pull request I, for I this. the code that fixed the bug that you were specifically having. And then we updated, we, they call it monkey patching. We patched the code live on your PF Sense box to make sure that it used my updated script. And we got That must be another problem. It still doesn't work. And then they found another issue after you, like another problem. And they also just updated it for this other problem too. And um, I don't know if we'll ever get to revisit it because now I'm on Comcast Business and I have like static IPs. So I'm probably just gonna static IP my my box and it won't be a, really a, an issue anymore. But um, maybe DigitalOcean works better. Maybe that's the missing link for me. DigitalOcean works flawlessly and I believe they don't charge you to host the DNS there. I'm almost positive it's a free service. I know they don't seem to have any extra that they add to my bill for it. Hmm. Maybe it's because I have, you know, um, 
things hosted in there now. But the overall experience with the DigitalOcean, getting the renewals to work, and I put a couple domains in there because um, all my demos for that, where I, I, what I wanted to do was publicly show all the details. So I used my home IP address for that, not my work ones. I didn't really want to go through and outline every piece of our internal infrastructure for work um, on there because it just raises too many questions or too many potentials. Um, hmm. But I did my home one and, you know, I've got, like I said, a couple domains in there and it's working great. Hmm. So that was uh, all the projects I have. But like I said, I also outlined them in more greater detail for the HA proxy one. Because I did the wildcard, I also did the individual certs. The next thing I might be doing with HA proxy is not just HTTP and HTTPS TC uh, offloading for the SSL, but also TCP offloading. I'm looking at setting up free PBX to mask it through HA proxy for the new Zulu function that is, uh, free PBX has. We, we've been using it, but the app, if you put it on your phone, does require that you have a, um, a properly signed certificate. So we might run that through HA proxy because the only way you can get signed certificates easily inside of free PBX is once again to expose it to the internet and that's just not on my to-do list. So the nice thing about wildcarding through every, everything through um, PFSense is there's no exposure. Oh yeah, the Let's Encrypt DNS uh, 01 challenge is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, the, definitely the DNS challenge is the way to go because then you don't have to worry about, you know, I don't like, now there is a way you could do this in PFSense where you have it only open the ports long enough to do the renew and pull it, and, but that still won't, that won't even work for wildcards. So it's not even really an option. And that also won't work if you have 80 and 443 in PFSense pointing to a proxy container that routes traffic to your various containers and things because that's going to be a whole new level that it's not going to be able to navigate through. So what I've been having to do is turn off my proxy, just have a good old-fashioned open 80 and 443 to the World Wide Web just for a few seconds, let that go through, and then shut it right back down and that's not the great way to do it. Nobody should do that. Don't don't listen to me. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it works for now, but I think I'm gonna go a different direction. So Tom, I was starting to watch your video is awesome that you did on this. And I, I plan on finishing it. I got sidetracked, but maybe you should link that video in the in the notes because it explains in PF Sense how to get that going. I think it was pretty sweet. Absolutely. Well, cool. How about you, Tony? Hey, it's been uh, it's been busy working at home. Uh, thankfully, I can I can be at home and do my day job just as I would and driving into the office. Um, but it's uh, it's amazing how many how busy we've been because everybody else is working at home also. And because uh, one of a large part of my job is if a company uh, is under an attack, then I have to do something about it. You know, I'm. I'm there to help uh, uh, mitigate a DDoS attack. Uh, well, the, the big indicator of a DDoS attack is the amount of traffic coming in. So they have these thresholds set saying, if we get anything above this, just start a DDoS or give us a call and we're going to figure out if we need one or a, a mitigation. That's what I went. And uh, well, everybody working at home, the VPNs are, are uh, having so much more traffic that all these thresholds are triggering and uh, either that or, uh, you know, whatever cloud infrastructure that has to like loop through the business first 
you know, it's, uh, so it's been really busy and, um, today it finally slowed down a little bit. I think everybody figured out what their threshold should be. Um, but in the meantime, I've been working on, um, my magic mirror. Uh, I think I've got it pretty much worked out except for there's one bug that I'm trying to get work working is I wanted to show my calendar and my wife and I, for our family, we have a Google calendar and I wanted to show that in there so that, you know, you wake up in the morning, you go look in the mirror and it tells you right there what's happening today. And I can't get that part working, but I've got uh, the rest of it working. So I'm pretty excited about finishing that project up. That's really awesome. So for someone who hasn't ever looked into this before, I mean, I've seen one person do this, but I don't know how it is in, in general. Uh, the, is the mirror like a computer monitor or is it overlaying something on an actual mirror? It is. Um, so it's a computer monitor that is behind a two-way mirror. So uh, what you do is you see it's mainly black except for like white text or, or maybe a few colors will show through. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it's black, then you just see the reflection, you know, kind of like a sun or, you know, the sunglass mirror things. But when there's mm-hmm. white text behind it, the white text shows through the mirror. So it looks magic. You're like, wait a minute. I thought that was a mirror. And now I'm seeing like things pop up. Well, uh, you get like the date and time and you get uh, the news. Um, by it, So it's pretty much default except for the weather. I have uh, dark sky. Have you guys ever played with that dark sky weather? Yeah, Dark Sky is great. And for the, for the audience, uh, Tony actually shared his screen so all of us can see. And one, I like the fact that it gives you compliments that are rolling across Tony's mirror right now. Yeah. Um, also, I'm bummed out because it's supposed to rain the next couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've got I've got it working. And then there's uh, a tutorial they go through like, oh, to get it to run by default, you do this, 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 this. And then there's like 10 other tweaks you have to run to get it to turn the monitor. Cause I have, mine is a, a, a TV that I've turned sideways and that's going to be a mirror. So it's going to be up and down tall. So I went through all those and, and it seemed to work for me. Uh, so I'm running it on a Pi three. Um, and it, the whole thing with this raspberry or with this uh, magic mirror project is that they've only written it to run on a raspberry Pi or and Phil, this might fix your problem. You can run it as a Docker image and then have the Raspberry Pi just act like a client and connect across the network to the Docker image. That's pretty interesting. I'll get into my problem or, well, <laughs> I don't just have one problem. Who am I <laughs> I'll get into my problems in a little bit. For your no, Jitsi right. server, I'd be, ru- I'd be curious how it runs on a Raspberry Pi cluster if you want to send uh, the information my way. Maybe I'll just uh, see if we can run it just to see if there's any difference on architecture or anything that runs any faster. I would assume running on a Linode, like I think that's the infrastructure you're running it on, it would be fast on their platform, but um, who knows? Maybe we can collaborate on it. Yeah, the thing, with, uh, the thing with video conferencing is you really need a lot of bandwidth and uh, some processing on the back end to process all the video streams coming in. So I'd be really surprised if a Raspberry Pi could handle it. 
Yeah, but keep in mind, people are running, believe it or not, Plex servers on the Pi 4 now. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that, yeah. Now, there's special considerations, but if you take it in, into consideration those considerations, then it's supposed to actually work decently, so it's surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the one other thing I've been working on is my uh, home automation setup. Uh, so I had it running good for a while, and then some like issue is that it, it started just uh, hanging up after like 10 or 12 hours of being on turned on. It would just no longer respond. And I couldn't figure it out. I thought it was my, it, I was running it on a Pi 4. I thought it was a problem with the Pi 4. I put it in a Pi 3 and uh, let it run for a while. And it did the same thing. It just was non un, or unresponsive after like 10 hours or, or whatever it was. And for a home automation system, that's kind of a problem. What software are you running for yours? It's the Mozilla uh, web things. Oh. And so you, uh, so it has, uh, like I have my lights on here. I, my thermostat, so you can see, um, you can, you can change the temp if you want or, or whatever you want it to be. Um, and Just to let also... everybody know, Tony's cool temperature is 79 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> That's that's what like you know if it gets ninety degrees outside I'm gonna drop it down but no I don't we usually keep it around seventy four so I this was just uh, me messing around with it trying to figure it out and but we're still in the heating mode right now in Michigan. Have you ever looked into Hass.io? I'm pronouncing that right. I have, um, and when I tried to set it up on the Raspberry Pi, it it just would not work. Really? Wow. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the deal was. It it was trying to start and then I gave it like four hours just to boot the first time and it would never boot. Hmm. Um anyway, so what I ended up doing is I reloaded this on a uh Ubuntu server. So I have an old laptop that uh is it's just a dual core with two gigs of RAM. So I threw it on that old laptop and uh, and now running it on this, and and it seems to be working pretty good. It has a neat uh, like floor plan mode where you can have the floor plan of your house, and then lay out the uh, lights and and thermostat and stuff where where they actually sit in the house. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks. Um, and then uh, and it also has a uh, like a logging mode, so you can see you know what's the temperature been throughout the day. And uh, and then like uh, you can monitor how much RAM is the system's using and things like that. Um, but this also has a dark sky uh, module where you can uh, have the temperature outside plus the temperature inside. So I have my thermostat saying it's 72 degrees inside the house, and outside right now is 45 degrees. Um, and then on top of all that. I had to set up my kids home uh, desks. And uh, so that was fun too. Uh, my, my daughter, I ended up taking my Raspberry Pi 4, setting up for her and that's her desk. Her, and so she's running it just as a desktop. It's a Pi 4 with four gigs of RAM and uh, running uh, Raspbian. And uh, it works pretty good. I was really surprised in how well it turned out. 
That's amazing. That Raspberry Pi 4 is more powerful, orders of magnitude more than my first computer, full desktop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like $35 and it's just, it just blows those old computers out of the water. Computers that cost a grand at one time is being outdone by something that costs less than 50 bucks. Yeah, yep, I agree. Uh, anyway, so that's pretty much what I've been up to. Uh, so Phil, uh, what's, uh, what's your projects been recently? All right. So I got a million of them. I have been, I have been working to the bone. Um, so as a guy who's been working from home for three years now, uh, this, this whole, everybody's working from home is really no skin off my back. Been here, done that, still doing it. Um, so our family, uh, parents, uh, siblings, we're, we've all been prepared. We've taken, we've taken care of this, uh, going to the store, stocking up on 10,000 rolls of toilet paper, like a month before all of this craziness kicked off. Um, that being said, there's always stuff that, you know, you find yourself not being prepared for because you can never be 100% prepared. That doesn't exist. So, uh, working from home, um, my wife and I have been going through uh, our pace, through our like daily work paces. Um, I'm in my office. She gets uh, to work in uh, her craft room with a nice cozy couch and stuff. And I'm just here and it's cold every day because the sun doesn't shine on this part of the house unlike her craft room. Um, so, you know, some things can be better. Uh, so you're a geek and you like sunlight? Uh, yeah i mean i only hiss at it sometimes i i guess the <laughs> vampire genes in me come and go as they please uh so things that i've been doing magic mirror um my buddy built this awesome magic mirror uh, with a walnut frame and a nice plexiglass plastic ish i guess not plastic it's plexiglass uh cover over the front of a computer monitor. Um, it has very nice mitered uh, 45 degree angle um, connections on it. It's got a nice coat of like polyurethane. It's all tucked away in the back. It's got a Raspberry Pi 4 with one gig of RAM with a power strip uh, so I can plug it into the wall, uh, plug the monitor into this little power strip. It's just a clean build. Now, Magic Mirror itself, oh, that has been no end of a headache. I think I've reinstalled that software, completely wiping this pie um, three, probably going to have to go on four times. I can only get the snow module, the default module, which tells me that I look hot every day. Hey, it says it itself. I'm not just, <laughs> you saw it on Tony's. Um, oh yeah. Well, the thing <laughs> is I believe it. <laughs> uh, so I, I can get those two modules working. I cannot, for the life of me, get any of the Google Maps API modules to work. Um, specifically, pre-coronavirus, I wanted my wife to be able to look at this thing every day before she leaves the house to go to work. So she could say, oh, hey, it's going to take me this long to get to work prior to her turning on her phone and like putting it into Google Maps. I thought it would just be nice to do. 
but it is such a freaking headache. I have fought probably like 20 hours minimum of my time into this thing. I have joined uh, the Magic Mirror uh, Discord and I've talked to tons of people there. I've helped tons of people solve their problems too. So it's not like I'm just some schlub only taking from the community. There is a guy, Sam Detweiler. I would like to give a humongous shout out to him. He keeps that entire application and that community functioning. But can't solve my problem. And apparently I can't solve my own problem with Magic Mirror. So um, when I get some free time, I'll probably format the Pi again, go through the exact same installation instructions um, as I always have. But maybe I'll pay attention better this time. I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing wrong. I'm not seeing these modules work like they should. I've tried, I've tried all the different debugging methods. I've tried capturing packets. Uh, you name it, I've probably done it. Um, so enough about Magic Mirror, because now my blood's boiling and I'm not cold anymore. Let's talk about my home lab. So Jay, Tom, Tony, all you guys have sweet home labs. Me, I've got some Raspberry Pis, I think like six or seven of them, of Raspberry Pi one through four, just spread across the house doing who knows what. And then I've got my old firewall, uh, which I converted into a container host. And uh, so it uses this pretty interesting storage technology. Um, it's not network shared, uh, but it's this thing called XFAT. It's formatted with, and uh, it's just an eSATA hard drive that I connect to this little computer and I can share storage to my Flex server. It's nothing special. And I think that it's a solution. Actually, I disagree. It is something special. I think you're sitting on a gold mine and you don't realize this because for my testing, Raspberry Pi is all you need. And what I'm going to do in the chat right now is I'm going to paste a product. This is for you. I know the listeners can't see it, so I'll describe it. It's on Amazon and it is a storage or a server rack for four Raspberry Pis. It has a neon glowing fan on the front, an LED fan. And I have some power over ethernet hats that I'm going to be plugging into my Pies. And there's not even going to be power cords coming off this thing. In addition to that, I did a video recently where I installed Open Media Vault on a Pi with this special hat that is for attaching a hard drive. And you can actually have multiples of these to have a few hard drives on your Pi to do RAID. So you could actually have a full NAS. And in my case, you know, I have a Raspberry or a Kubernetes cluster. Honestly, like if it ever slows down, just add another Pi to it. You don't, you don't need a, a bunch of servers as much as I'd love to have you go to my affiliate links and buy one of those fancy expensive motherboards. Honestly, you don't need to. You have everything you need right there. This thing is pretty cool. It, it looks like... Um... It's just CNC cut out of a couple pieces of plexiglass. It's thrown together with some machine screws. And you can put a whole bunch of pies of all different, like, pie fours, threes, and twos on this thing uh, and for 40 I will, bucks. I will tell you that you are not wrong. 
if you were to buy it, that's exactly what you would think is somebody did exactly that. And I would suspect that some of our listeners will probably look at that and say, oh yeah, I could do that and have no problem, you know, reverse engineering just based on looking at it. The other product I'll send you, the second link is what I used for the NAS or the, in my uh, open media vault video that allows you to attach the hard drive. Now, to be fair, I mean, it, Raspberry Pi has USB. You don't need this board to attach a hard drive to it, but it just, it's cleaner, it looks cooler, makes it more organized. They even sell a case that you, because it looks ugly, to be honest. So for the listeners, obviously they can't see my screen. So it literally looks like two circuit boards attached by copper cylinder pegs that hold it all together with wires hanging off the side. But they do make a case that you could put around it to actually, you know, make it look decent. But um, if you just buy some of this stuff right here, I mean, you have a server rack and it, the difference is your server rack could fit on a bookshelf. Uh, right now, it actually is sitting on a bookshelf. Oh, well, then you can <laughs> close it in fancy plexiglass with a LED neon fan to, uh, you know, blind you or something when it's, uh, you're working in the middle of the night and it's dark, you have this big hideous light, but it actually looks kind of cool. So I like it. It's currently unavailable because of current, the current state of the world right now. Um, it makes everything harder, logistics harder, but maybe when they're back in stock, it's, it's got low ratings. And the reason is because you don't get a power cord with it that you need. Um, it, they, they don't advertise that you get a power cord with it. You do have to buy that separately. Um, but the cool thing is you don't have to use the USB-C charger for the Raspberry Pi 4. You just use the actual power cord for this hard drive attachment. It'll power the Pi as well. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. You know, uh, I saw that your video on that. I was uh, just on my phone on the Google Now screen fl flipping through and I saw your video for that. Yeah, it's just one of those um, random experiments. Oh, this might look cool or it might be an epic fail. Uh, speaking of epic fail, I'll tell you about an epic fail. Um, another video I, I started recording and I'm still kind of trying to fight the system to record this. It's an external GPU. And the thought is you get a, you know, most laptops that are ultra portable can't do gaming. Put an external GPU on there. Can we do gaming? But kinda. Mm. Uh, there's some there's some issues I'm, that still kind of work out on there. Uh, maybe I'll finish that video and kind of save everybody the trouble. But there's all these experiments with hardware, and this is one of them. So if anybody's interested, maybe we'll put the links in the show notes, and you could take a look at the the products. And when uh, they're back in stock someday, probably months from now, it'll be an option to consider. Very cool. Very cool. I didn't mean to steal your thunder, uh, Phil. What I'm trying to say, though, is you you have a great setup already. So I would say just keep going that direction. You could really rock those Raspberry Pis and just just keep building an army of Raspberry Pis. It's, it'll be sweet. That's the goal. I mean, they're working for me. But I, in in my home lab, the thing that I most like is all of my networking gear and how I can easily manage it all. Now, as far as like. The, the Raspberry Pi army and this expat device goes. Uh, yeah, there's words to be said about that, but it's working. Yep. So that's, that's all great. that matters. Does it work? Yep. All right. You're, you're all set. So I don't, 
I don't have my own free NAS box. I don't have cool storage technology like that. Um, so that's why you never really hear me talk about it. But you don't, I mean, the, the whole thing for me is I, I'm producing a, a ton of video content. That's really huge file sizes being uploaded to Backblaze and all this other stuff. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't really feel like you'd benefit any more having a dedicated x86 rack server for that any more than you'd benefit from having one of these uh, things that allows you to attach a bunch of hard drives to a Pi. I think it'll work just fine. The performance is great on Open Media Vault on the Pi. You'll be fine with that. Yeah, I mean, it allows me to torrent free software and there store it. <laughs> uh, so enough about my home lab or lack of home lab. Um, I've been doing a lot of folding at home instead. So folding at home is uh, this awesome distributed um, research project that comes out of Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri um, that allows people all over the globe with spare CPU and GPU uh, graphics card cycles to contribute towards cancer research, um, uh, coronavirus research, and tons of other uh, diseases that plague humanity. And in the past uh, eight days, I think my graphics card was able to turn out 57 work units for coronavirus research, whatever that means. I'm no Tom's Hardware or Anantech doing hundreds of thousands of work units, but I'm just one guy in my house uh, helping to figure out what the heck the coronavirus is and what scientists can do to solve it just with spare computer cycles. Uh, so that's that's been pretty cool. I let the computer run for um, like, a week and a half straight now. Uh, it's still over there chugging away. Um, I go to sleep and go about my days and it researches these viruses. Um, now, granted, the computer it's running on is Windows. So there's that, that's an immediate downside. I could have extra cycles going towards this research if I was running like a headless uh, Linux box, but you know, it's on a computer where some games only run on Windows. We can't all be perfect. Right. <laughs> the only reason I have a Windows computer at my house is just to play games. As long as it doesn't blue screen, we're fine. Well, it still does. That's why it's a different computer than what I actually get. <laughs> uh, going back to Jay, your, your Amazon link about this Raspberry Pi um, clustering like case setup. I just got the go ahead from my wife today uh, to get a 3D printer. And this happened with her sending me links to some cool 3D printed projects. She's like, hey, we could do this. I'm like, does that mean I can buy one? She said, yeah, of course. Hey. Uh, so I have, I have had my eye on this thing called the Snapmaker 2.0 for quite some time now. Now, it's not cheap. But it does laser engraving, it does CNC with a tiny little router, and it also does 3D printing. So it's a three-in-one. 
Um, that means I can do wood, metal, and plastics. I'll have to save up for it. I don't think it comes out until August, so hopefully I can come up with the money. Maybe I'll turn over all the couches in the house, um, find all those extra quarters and pennies and stuff. Um, but one day, I'll be able to do cool things with a 3D printer. I have an idea for you. We can maybe collaborate on it, but I'm not an electrician and I'm not good with those kinds of things. But depending on your skill level, what, what I want to see in, in the server rack that I, that I posted, I think it's awesome. I have, I have two of them because I have eight Raspberry Pis. But it doesn't, it's not really what I would hope exists, right? I would like to see an actual rack mount case that you could actually put a bunch of Raspberry Pis inside this rack mount case. And it would go in a standard server rack. Inside the case would be a standard switch that would all go into one network port on the back. So you'd plug in your network cable to the back of the server case as if it was just an x86 server. And you'd plug in one power cord to the back as if it was any other server. But on the inside, it's routing that power to the Pis and it's routing the network to the Pis as well. So you basically have a server with like 30 Raspberry Pis inside this case. But to anyone looking at it, it looks just like any other rack server that, um, you know, you would have. And honestly, as far as I know, this doesn't exist. And if it maybe it could be an open spec that like people could just go to GitHub and download it. They could just make it themselves with the schematics or whatever. And then we could really open up the server space with, with a really cool project that people could just build. I think it'd be a lot of fun if we could make this happen. And if you not got the know-how um, with that fancy tool, um, that printer you want to get, that'd be really exciting. That sounds really interesting. Well, there it is. If you want to use it, <laughs> you can use it. You can make this happen. Just open source it, crowdsource it. Just, I just maybe want to see a public domain or something. That'd be great. I agree. Um, I've also been, uh, well, I was supposed to be traveling a whole lot uh, the past month and a half. I was supposed to go to Santa Clara, California for SRE Con 2020. Um, SRE is Site Reliability Engineer. That's my work title. It's just a fancy name for a system administrator or a programmer. Uh, and that got COVID canceled real quick. Um, and then I was supposed to go to Boston, Massachusetts uh, to go to the Libra Planet 2020 conference. Um, that's hosted by the Free Software Foundation. And that one I was super, super excited for. I was going to get to stay with uh, some friends. And I was supposed to, um, on behalf of Let's Encrypt, uh, receive an award, uh, the 2019 Award for Projects of Social Benefit. And I was really extremely honored uh, to have been chosen to do that. Um, and that awards presented to projects and teams um, that apply free software or the ideas of free software uh, to benefit society and humanity. So that conference, instead of being in person, was at the last minute changed to be um, an online conference. So instead of me going to Boston, I went to Tom's shop. And 
we shot a thank you speech um, that that I read uh, practice probably like 40 times, most of them bad takes. Tom's got all this F roll footage. Um, and we made a really nice polished video. And that's up on YouTube now. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. And uh, it, was a, it was a cool conference um, being turned into an online only one at the last moment. So that's very, very big props to the Free Software Foundation. What an amazing honor. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was, it, it was, it was the coolest thing. So the award is this gold-dipped vinyl record that says Let's Encrypt. And it's got a couple different tracks on it. And there's um, a bullet point for uh, 1 billion certificates issued, um, 190 million active websites, and all this other stuff. It was, oh, it's so cool. Uh, I can't believe they chose me to do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't got the words for it. Uh, and then the last thing that has been plaguing me more so than the coronavirus is every day, several times throughout the day, so I think this is a cron job, or maybe it's just demons in my system. I don't know yet. Um, my PFSense firewall just annihilates its uh, CPU cycles on this little four-core AMD uh, Jaguar processor. It will get up to like 15 on a one-minute uh, W. So that's like 15, 15 processes waiting for CPU time. And I found that it's this process called PF purge. And I don't know why this happens. I don't know what it's doing. I want it to stop because when this problem affects my firewall, I'm unable to do anything on the internet. Um, video calls drop, VPN connections drop, and it's just so frustrating. Are you running PF Blocker? No, I got rid of PF Blocker and offloaded everything onto a Pi Hole, which runs on a Raspberry Pi. Weird. I'm yeah. not, I, I actually Googled it uh, while I seen you have it in the notes here, and nothing really came up. I, I, I myself have not seen it. So that's definitely something strange. Something strange. I'm going to um, go out on a limb here. I'm sure you did an update recently because as far as I know, there haven't been any updates recently. No, so just going to throw like this out there for whatever it might be worth. Just randomly run memtest86 on it. Just see what happens. I would guess that it's something to do with purging uh, log files. So I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, you can change the, your log retention um you know time like i don't know how much you know how much uh, logs it holds yeah, on yeah. To. i'll try both of those i hope it's not memory problems um this thing has four gigs of ecc ram in it uh it's a little pc engines apu4 box and until this thing started happening uh it's been great and then, yeah, I haven't seen it. I mean, that that PC Engines one is technically more powerful than the SG1100 that this is running. Because I'm, I'm at home right now, so 
Uh, the SG1100 I have has only two gigs of RAM and a two-core processor. It's running HAProxy, it's running OpenVPN, and it's streaming us no problem with me being the server and no issues. It's, it's sitting there like at idle while uh, my wife is watching Netflix. <laughs> there's, there's ghosts in my machine. Mm. Thanks, for, thanks for the tips. And listeners, if you have any ideas of what this nightmare that's affecting me could be, please email us at show. Yeah, so if you well, have any, uh, if you have anything that uh, you want to tell us, yep, just uh, send it in to show at smlr.us. Yes. So distro is coming up. The Linux Mint has released Mint 4 LMDE. And uh, if you've been around Linux for a while, you you might remember what uh, Linux Mint LMDE is. It's the uh, Linux Mint Debian edition. And uh, so if you want to use a system that's uh, like Linux Mint, but based on Debian instead, then here's your chance. Uh, so this is their fourth update. So it doesn't get a lot of updates, but but that one's available now. My understanding is that's their plan B. If they ever decide all of a sudden they wake up one morning and hate Ubuntu, their their main base, then they maintain this. They could always uh, jump ship and go right to it. Um, and it's a great distribution when I tried it. Um, what's interesting though is you know Debian offers a cinnamon desktop flavor already, um, so they're not technically doing much that they don't already do, but it has the Linux Mint theme and some of their customizations, which Mint users really love. But um, yeah, I think that could be of special interest to people that want the Linux Mint feel, but a Debian base instead of Ubuntu. So new yeah. version of uh, Parrot, Parrot 4.8. I, I played with it for a while. I got some videos on it. I want to do some more, but I, I actually talked with some of the developers who reached out to me because they liked that I did videos on it, but I told them they have to get it stable because it was having so many updates a day for a while. I had to drop it as a distro because every update was like a playing Russian roulette of whether or not your computer would have a whole lot of things that didn't work. Um, so I'm hoping they got it all stabilized. That was something they're working on. So I'm going to have to give them a try now that they have a new release. The other one that's interesting, at least I know to the home lab people, um, but less to me, but if you're looking for a project, Jay, this is a number one request is a uh, Univention corporate server is one of a few distros that will completely replace Active Directory. So you can have a centralized server, you can have it, even your Windows computers authenticating against it as if it was Active Directory. I just not have taken the time to do it because you know, it doesn't, it, it, I don't use this because it's not actually a good drop-in for any of our clients because frequently they have to run Windows Active Directory because other tools they have of their enterprise software uses it as a way to uh, validate their access. But I was told by a lot of people that a lot of things that even require Active Directory can authenticate against it because it fools it into thinking it's a Windows server. Uh, so it's kind of, it's a neat project, I think. It's not something I've really dug into. I get the... Uh, premise of it, you know, having the central authority of Active Directory without having the Microsoft server that randomly reboots and takes two hours to load an update and get stuck and delete your files. So, <laughs> like, I get its, pre you know, it, its appeal, um, and it's cool that they're still working on it. I just haven't really found a business use case for it. Gotcha. Yeah, I might take a look at it. I have, uh, 
number of things to get caught up on. Um, but that might be something I'll do maybe over the summer when I get finished with the Kubernetes stuff. I think I'm also going to try to get certified in it too at this rate. I may as well. <laughs> but um, yeah, it looks pretty cool. It looks like it might even do more than just Active Directory because it looks oh, like yeah. it's got, got shows App Center on it. Yeah, it looks pretty cool though. You know what I see on here that looks really interesting is Ira, Aira, I don't A R Y A, Arya, Arya, uh, and so most Linux distros out here now are are based on something. It's either based on Debian, or like Ubuntu or Fedora, or or you know something like that. This one, the person built it from scratch, and I can't even say his name. Check around Sai. I don't know, but uh, it's built from Linux from scratch, and uh, so you can have the chance to to use something that has no base to it. It's just what the Linux distro is. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely might be fun. Unfortunately, I failed trying to use Linux from scratch. But again, that was actually when I was early in my career too. I wasn't a season. So I wonder if I would do any better now. But so this just take that away. Like, do you still have to build anything, or is it just basically built for you? But, but from that project, um, it's I'm I'm just reading the the distro or the the thing off a of distro uh, watch. But uh, I'll look it up, and I mean it's a full distro that uh, he put together. So I don't think yeah. you don't have to go through the whole Linux from scratch setup. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm but grokking from this too. It kind of seems like they. That's really cool. Yeah. Mm, very cool. You'd think there'd be more, but maybe this uh, virus has it slowed down for some of the distros coming out. <laughs> well, there will be because we have Fedora and Ubuntu. Um, April usually becomes a big month generally may as well because after you have your ubuntu's and everything come out then of course linux mint is going to follow suit a month later so i think of it as a calm before the storm within a month we're going to look at this and we're going to have a lot to talk about yeah well on here they do have a announcement for the fedora 32 beta and that's really cool they've got something called the early oom uh early out of memory killer um, that kills memory hungry processes, um, especially when you get into like uh, high swap utilization. Um, I'd be interested to see how that works because a lot of things that I run don't use swap anymore. I just turn it off even on my laptops. Um, but the machines that I still use swap on, I'd be interested to see what it does. Um, now, what that means for me specifically, because I use cubes, now that there's a Fedora 32 beta, that means Fedora 31 should be coming to cubes as a native VM. Um, so here's hoping. Yeah, yeah. All right. They have uh, improved virtualization built in. So, you know, if you ever want to try rolling your own on a newer base, you know, you could also do that if you uh, have nothing better to do, but a cubes is pretty cool too. So 
I think uh, the Fedora also has some built-in virtualization stuff I think is worth checking out as well. For sure. Does anybody else see any other uh, interesting distros to mention? I don't see anything else. I think we can move on to the news. Right. All right, I can kick this off here. I thought this was a good report. This is um, the report from um, Red Hat, you know, the enterprise, the state of enterprise open source software. I don't want to have trouble saying that. <laughs> um, this is an interesting survey that's commissioned by Red Hat. So obviously Red Hat being open source advocates and us being open source advocates, it might sound a little biased, but they actually commissioned a third party company to really dig into the statistics and talk to, I believe they had almost a hundred um, corporate enterprise IT directors or CISOs, different high level uh, people to build the report, 950 people exactly, IT leaders as they referred to them uh, to do the surveys. But it's really interesting because every year they've been doing this and it's been getting more and more. It turns out companies, in, especially in the large uh, enterprise market are really seeing a big increase in open source. Uh, and they're seeing the proprietary software plummeting. It's plummeting maybe, um, I seen that as a headline a couple people use it. I, maybe not quite plummeting, but definitely moving uh, sharply down. We have a link in the show, so it breaks down details that you could spend an hour going through. Uh, they've got a really nice site for helping present it. But overall, what's, what's really driving this is the adaptation of the cloud. So as more and more companies move things to the cloud, they're re-engineering them, they're retooling them. They're usually basing that out in open source software uh, to build all these tools because you know running these desktop applications I was just in a conversation today with a company automotive and they're trying to figure out how to get this 17 year old SQL app <laughs> finally to do something to connect properly so they can display the statistics for their production in a web interface and we had the discussion of rebuilding it in the cloud and it's like this it's so inefficient to do it they've literally had Windows update because it runs on a Windows 10 computer for a unnamed automotive company that managed their production with a SQL database. No one's rewriting this to run on a desktop anymore. So I think this is kind of exciting to see, but I think it's just finally getting there. And Windows is like self-destructing. All these updates and everything are, are literally disruptive right to the enterprise level of these markets. And when you start re-looking and retooling, you go, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to build it in the cloud. And when you build it in the cloud, you're going to build it on a LAMP stack. You're going to build it with Nginx. You're going to build it with, you know, more common available tools that people are used to using. So it's interesting. It's positive. Um, it's still not the year of the Linux desktop, though, in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> with the rise of the cloud-native uh, computing foundation, um, having dedicated software projects for all of the different layers that you might need for a cloud-based application, I think that's really helping to drive adoption of this free open source software. Security was noted in there as well. And I think what uh, companies have just seen in a, the, the proprietary companies that have generally uh, held control of the market, and this goes both for the network gear, some of the, you know, the backend infrastructure for these companies, right up to the front end infrastructure, the proprietary companies aren't holding up their end of the bargain when it comes to security. They're saying closed sources, you no know, more secure has always been the preaching they've done, uh, but they've been proved to be very, very buggy. They've proved to be some of the biggest reasons for 
uh, these security vulnerabilities has been these closed source companies. So it's a combination of security and the maturity of these tools, the availability of companies like Red Hat to support these tools. And like you said, Phil, they're having great segmentation of it. So as you start picking your stack, it's well-documented, well-organized. You can, it, it's, it's something kind of mainstream to do it now. So it's, it's not a, it's not being clutched together like it used to be where we grabbed a bunch of random things and, and built the stack that was more like Jenga than an actual solid foundation. <laughs> oh, for sure. The fact that we, we all get to share a common tool base and in that common tool base, maybe we have different web server technologies, but we all get to use something that we feel comfortable with to accomplish the same job. I think that is incredibly powerful. And if we ever need to switch to another one of these technologies, it's not some gigantic uh, company destroying hurdle. Right. So definitely good news there. But Phil's got some bad news to cover. <laughs> oh, yeah. So they, they stopped me with this one. Just kidding. I picked this one myself. Uh, so there is uh, some brand new badness coming out of Congress, um, something called the Earn It Act, which stands for Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act. Uh, and what this does is help just like any of these other um, uh, technology-focused acts from Congress, uh, it helps to curtail child sexual abuse material, AKA let's backdoor all of the encryption in the United States. Um, so we can follow on the coattails of Australia and have mm. all of our encryption technologies backdoored. That means that um, the government can read our encrypted messages uh, because won't someone please think of the children, which is always the argument that this falls back on. So this is a major threat to our freedom of speech and security online. This was introduced by Senators Lindsey Graham, who is a Republican out of South Carolina, and Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat out of Connecticut. So this has bipartisan support. Both parties are in the wrong here. Um, this is... <laughs> this, this follows in the footsteps of 2018's FOSTA and SESTA, um, which didn't pass. Um, the EFF has uh, uh, some action out. Um, if you search Google for EFF uh, Earn It, you can find their document about this. Um, and this uh, proposed bill comes right at the start of all of the coronavirus madness that's uh, happening in the United States. So while the American public is busy worrying about the safety of their friends and families um, and staying indoors, uh, just trying to figure out how to live life in this new world. This encryption destroying act is trying to get past through Congress um, completely uh, under the radar of most Americans. So what can we do? Well, same thing we've always done. Uh, we can email, we can call our uh, Congress people. Um, we can talk about this uh, on this podcast. You can 
share this information with your friends so they can call or email or write letters to uh, their Congress people. Um, we've taken out, we being um, the technologists of the United States have taken out these attacks on encryption before, we'll do it again and we'll do it the next time it happens. This is, this type of bill is something that I think is always going to uh, come back to haunt us. This is worse than the zombie process. Yeah, it's it's um, it's always like Phil said. There's so many different bills that are kind of focused on the same thing, and uh, they always start with the children. It's to save the children. It's not to steal your rights. To save the children, which makes me laugh because I, I always hear. I, I don't. I say it on my head the way George Carlin, the late George Carlin, almost 25 years ago was talking about, and it was unrelated directly to web technologies, but the same concept. Anytime they're trying to strip away rights, they start with the children. He's got an entire joke skit you can find on YouTube about it, and here we are 25 years later, now talking about it in a slightly different context of the internet, but the concept and the base is the same. You don't need your rights because we need to protect children, therefore you shouldn't have rights. <laughs> it just, uh, it hasn't changed um, but uh, EFF, donate money. If you can throw some uh, coinage at them, they would be very happy. They're the ones that are uh, probably one of your best resources for the latest information on there. We have a link in the show notes to the page uh, that EFF has on there. They're always on the right side of it in case you're ever confused. When you see these bills that says it's going to save the world and make it better, uh, check what the EFF thinks. Or they'll, they'll decipher it for you and get rid of the politics out of it. Uh, so donate to the EFF besides all the other things that Phil said as well. Those are all good ways to do that. Thanks, Tom. Absolutely. And we need to get to a point where we're not having laws related to IT being decided by people that are still having their aides print directions from MapQuest. That's true. Fantastic yeah, I agree. <laughs> they don't know how these tubes work, and uh, we don't want them looking in the tubes anyways. <laughs> Ah, so the cloud is full. And I made a little meme I posted on Twitter based on the old uh, crappers poll from, <laughs> from the family mm. Christmas. But yes, Amazon was full. Customers of Microsoft's Azure cloud reporting capacity issues in the inability to create resources and associated reliability issues. This is specifically for the UK one. And they couldn't just change regions. Apparently, there's just not enough data centers in the UK to handle capacity of people trying to spin things up in Azure. But there's a little trick to the way Microsoft, they, they had all green lights on this. And I kind of thought this was a funny way to keep your, you know, five nines of uptime. Outage tracking websites such as Down Detector show quite a few reports about UK Azure issues today, yet the official Azure status page is all is given all green. The inability to provision resources does not count as an outage as such. <laughs> Though is more than an annoyance and it is not always feasible to create resources in alternative regions of Azure. Some of these types of resources have to be the same region in order to work properly. And if you're not familiar with how some of that works, uh, Azure, and a lot of them have gone this way, um, they'll do kind of what I call it like rolling blackouts. You only pay for the CPU time you use, so you can actually spin down and pause the servers when you're not working. But those resources have to be available to spin them back up because they kind of go in a dormant. Well, if they're not available, all of a sudden that virtual desktop instance, you go, hey, I hit the button, but it says there's no resources available. And they're like, that's not downtime. Just because you can't use it, it's not down. They're just too, they always oversell it, but they um, never had this many people want to spin up the remote sessions all the time. So um, yep. yeah, these are some interesting problems we're going to start running into. Uh, 
cloud reaching capacity, essentially, especially with everyone trying to work from home right now. I would really like to know um, what the postmortem is going to be for this and how they're going to improve their capacity planning moving forward. Surely somebody or some team has to be thinking about this. Uh, this comes from this comes from a guy who's been uh, heads down at work doing capacity planning for the past several months and is having some projects finally, some capacity plan projects finally come to fruition. So I'm, I'm quite interested what Microsoft is going to say about this. I think the, this may kill off that long tail of legacy faster. When you think about the absolute inefficiency of spinning up a bunch of Windows machines in a cloud, they're resource intensive. You're trying to dedicate one BDI to one person so they can use their software that they couldn't use in the cloud because it's written in SQL from 17 years ago, so they need to fire it up to that. If you took the time to rewrite the app into a web-based application, you would need less resources to operate it, and they could access it from really any Linux computer with a browser attached to it. Um, as, my, as applications do that way, and I'll call out QuickBooks as a very specific example, um, we have so many clients that if you look at what we built for them, they're like, oh, they have a gaming or a design computer? We're like, no, that just runs their QuickBooks. <laughs> like 64 gigs of RAM. I'm like, yep, it's a big company. <laughs> so when you talk about a bunch of people running those type of old, native, poorly coded applications and each person that's spinning their own BDI for it, um, it's the long tail of legacy is like the bigger problem. Microsoft's only answer is going to be build more data centers. You know, that's one option. The other option is Stop looking at the apps you use and go, why do you run all these stupid local apps? You could run this in the cloud. We moved a law firm from a bunch of local apps to a cloud instance, and they're like, this is so much easier. Why did we fight this? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, they all had this stupid application, and we had to load on everyone's computer, and it would break randomly, and it had a SQL database in the back end. Now it's a Laravel app on a page that they just everyone logs into and logs their hours. And they're like, this is in every way easier, and no VDI is needed. I'm like, yes. So I think the big term picture is going to be people moving towards getting rid of these legacy applications because just running them the challenges of running them. Um, and when you capacity plan for a cloud, well, now you only have to plan for number of users, not running, not trying to figure out how do I spin up 3,000 Windows machines with each four gigs of RAM so they can run QuickBooks. <laughs> it, it doesn't scale well. <laughs> no. So, well, what do you think, Tony? Yeah, no, I agree. The yeah, it's web-based is, is really the way to go. And, yeah, web-based uh, distributed. I mean, you, when you worked in the medical field, I you've probably seen this where some of those programs that maybe they ran could have been turned into a web-based and be just wouldn't have been more efficient because it would have required less individual computer resources. Yeah, exactly. And then you can really, not just less, but you can strip down, strip down, or strip down the client uh, computer so much that it's just an easy swap out, you know, for just uh, um, maintenance in general, it's, it's a better way to go. So you have a, a data center that has all the, the web apps and that's really what uh, a lot of the stuff they were, we were doing on, you know, the, for the majority of the workforce was all web apps related yeah, uh, or Citrix apps. It gets a lot easier when you just uh, use like app publishing. And matter of fact, there's ways to do this in Linux. I've got a few videos on X2Go, which you can not 
only used for remote desktop style features in Linux, but you can do application publishing on it. And I have a video like on that for my YouTube. It's really clever. You can take one computer in the background, bring the application to your desktop, even if your desktop's not fast, but have the backend power there. And, you know, it makes it a little bit more reasonable. So I think there's, as we change the dynamic of how we do computing, it's, it'll get more efficient. Um, yeah. Large bloated windows apps can go away and I, I'm happy to see them leave. <laughs> Hi, Felicia. <laughs> yeah, my thoughts exactly, Jay. <laughs> Speaking of big applications, though, this one you do have to run locally if you want some if you want to get uh, get some work done. GIMP 2.10.18 builds on the own refinements introduced last year on the GIMP 2.10.14 release in a number of exciting ways. First and best major change to Toolbox is the left-handed panels for use for switching between tools. So they've redone some of the tooling menu to try and make it easier. I've been, I've been enjoying the updates because I, I made a really, I was a long-time Photoshop user. And as anyone who's ever worked design knows, Photoshop is the gold standard. Also, once you've used it for a really long time, it's hard to not use it. Um, but I took the time and I've been using GIMP now for a couple of years and I like it. Uh, and they have some new th cool 3D transform features. That's awesome. I still don't see the drop shadow feature that I really wish it has, but they did improve something I really like. I still have all my PSD files from my Photoshop days. I can import them better. Some didn't work before, but they're working on it. So I still have all those years ago graphics files. That I did. Now I can open more PSDs that I, uh, ended up recreating in GIMP. So now if I find something old graphic I want, I can still pull it back up in there. But uh, really cool that they have, It's it's been seeing more and more uh, support for it. And overall though, GIMP is pretty uh, efficient. It's a lot thinner than Adobe when it comes to loading up. So it may not have every bell and whistle, but it does open really fast. It's uh, It doesn't feel bloated. It's fast to use. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, it does not crash my Cubes device quite like uh, Jira in a browser does. So there's, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, there's that to say about it. Now I, I grew up, um, Photoshopping things. I used Photoshop for probably like 18 years of my life. And for the past, uh, 10, 11 years, I've been using GIMP, but not nearly in the capacity that I could use Photoshop for. And that's strictly because I'm used to all the old hotkeys and exactly where every single button was in Photoshop. Yes. My one wish is that there could be better parity between all of the hotkeys and features that I used in Photoshop as there are in GIMP. I, um, the way I learned, and I still have not broken this habit, you can remap a lot of stuff and that was what finally yeah. got using it. Um, someone has a, you, you can Google it, how to Photoshop your GIMP. I think is what it was titled. It was a great, it was some play on like that, but it was, uh, it was fun and you may get some weird results. Just don't, don't click on all those. Anyways, <laughs> um, go through and you, it has a lot of settings that make it more Photoshop like, and that helped me a lot in getting there. Um, there's also a couple of really good YouTube channels dedicated to GIMP tutorials. They're really handy for learning some features in GIMP. Um, there's a couple of people who do logo design and things like that, and they use open source tools. And their YouTube channel has some views on it, so there's some. I, I do some learning when I got to learn a new trick in GIMP to try to get something done. I'm pretty good because mostly I'm just using it for my um, my YouTube workflow uh, for creating graphics. But occasionally I'll do some little thing. I'll make a meme with it or something like that. It'll challenge me a little bit, and memes are always entertaining. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So one thing that uh, GIMP isn't a great tool with, or maybe it is, I just don't know how to do it, but is creating diagrams. So, uh, Tom, you you uh, threw this link in there, and, and I was checking it out, and it looks really cool. It's uh, diagrams.net. And it it's awesome. It's a web-based diagram program that you can create your diagrams and then it will, it has links to uh, save it right to your, uh, a couple of the cloud uh, services or you can download it to your local machine. It has uh, a, a whole lot of templates and, and pre-built diagrams and then you can just drag a few things around. So uh, it gives you an idea of, of uh, you know, simple things that you already have set up and you could add to it or whatever. Um, what makes it even cooler is the, the templates are really nice, but to top that off, the icon sets in are amazing. So commercial companies, because I believe they have a way to convert uh, the templates that are from other popular drawing programs, such as Visio, there are Veeam, Cisco, AWS, Azure, iPhone, uh, Android, all the different building blocks for like their icons, really detailed uh, infrastructure, programming workflows. You can create some of the most, I was, I spent like two and a half hours today redocumenting our network and redoing it all with a uh, diagram. I'm, it was one of the easiest of all the tools I've used because I used to use DIA and I always hated it. And so I started using Yed and it was just a different pain in the butt. This has some of the easiest ways to, uh, diagram out and draw the networks it was intuitive i didn't spend much time in the help files at all and i was able to start just massively uh building out which i realized my network become really really complicated and that's why i was documenting it um but it was great for a uh, usability standpoint it didn't take a whole lot of learning it was just kind of oh drag this over here and it also has a lot of workflow tools like clicking next to things to auto align them and duplicate things. So once you've created the work once, you can just click it a few times. It'll, it'll, it already build the connectors and keep duplicating them across the screen. So if you're building like a programmatic workflow and you want to show the steps of how a process is done, it kind of automates a lot of that. Then you can just fill the text in for each part of the steps. And we are working right now uh, to try to create better document as my company has grown. Just I'm trying to get a handle on it now before there's too many of us for where everything is, what all the processes are. So I'm using it for process flow, but today I spent it for uh, network diagrams, but it's, it's free open source. It's got flat pack and app images you can download um, as well as installers. Windows too, if, if you're a Windows listener and haven't you know, come over to see the light with us Linux folks. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Thanks for uh, throwing that in there. I know exactly what you mean about DIA uh, and yeah, been there, done that. Yeah, it's definitely a, a really good one. So, speaking of working from home, I like the title at least. Pet the cat, own the bathrobe, Linus Torvalds on working from home. I think my favorite quote was, Linus admits that when he started, I worried about missing human interaction, not just talking to people in the office and the hallways, but going to lunch, etc. Turns out I never really missed it. And <laughs> I tell you, there are many days where I'm pretty convinced uh, if no one was in the office, I'm kind of happier. So I feel mm -hmm. like my office is my home because I usually go there before my staff gets in. So I have quiet time. Um, so, and, and right now with the current situation, some of them are working from home, which has made it quieter at my office and me happier. So um, I really like this, but I think it's kind of relevant to uh, today. And it's a recent article. Um, and it's some of the 
uh, workflow stuff that Linus does, but there's also something I didn't know about. Um, so there's kind of a link in here, a tool I never use called Rescue Time, and it's basically will track everything you do while you're at home on your computer. And that sounds interesting, but then you realize, oh, I guess I spend this much time on social media or this much time actually working. But it, once you start breaking your day out into metrics, it can uh, provide you feedback for ways to you know, stay on top of it. But I think it's an interesting short little article about uh, you know, a guy who really does work from home and has done some amazing stuff working from home. Not that Phil hasn't, because he's been doing it for a while too, but Linus has been doing a little bit longer, so. Oh yeah, he's, he's easily, 1.2 times more important than I am at a minimum. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's just a few tips on there. I mean, I, some people are better acclimated to it. Sometimes, um, you know, I'm not saying social is bad, but it's nice to have uh, that quiet focus time. And even myself, I'll do that when I can work from home and sit down and focus. I, once you get those patterns going on there, matter of fact, my office is really, I have the smallest office of any office in my building. But the reason why is so no one comes to my office. It's, it's efficient. It's an efficiency thing. <laughs> yeah. So working from home, it, you know, me, I think it's been two years now and you know, there's, there's some challenges. I mean, I'm, and for some people it's harder for some than others, but for, for some people they find themselves more productive. Like for me, my big problem is I, I can't tune anything out. So if somebody is doing some construction, they're hanging a picture frame up on the wall and using a hammer or, you know, office chatter, people with loud keyboards. I can't tune any of that out. It's just a personal weakness. And there's other reasons why working from home might work for others. But for me, it's noise canceling headphones. I don't have to worry about someone interrupting me as much. I can get more done. I think for some people, it could really be a great thing. I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. Uh, I, if I never have to hear someone chewing on a bag of chips ever again, I'm perfectly fine with this. As I, uh, <laughs> being, being that I happen to own the company, I do say things. I have a particular employee that I don't think he's ever chewed with his mouth closed ever in his life. And <laughs> I can't help it. When he comes to my office, so he's munching away on chips. And I'm like, your mouth is open. I just say it as soon as he comes in. He goes, oh, I'll wait till I'm done with my chips. I said, thank you. Then you may come to my office. Also, um, I'm putting a new sign on my door that could this have been a message before you twist this knob? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I need to, I'm trying, trying to iterate that. It already says do not dumb here, but that didn't work. <laughs> kind of like, you know, me, I put a sign on my front door working from home and it, it's really big. It's bold letters. It says until five o'clock, this is a workplace. Do not knock on my door. Yes, this does mean you go away. And if I do answer the door, it's going to be to tell you to go away. <laughs> come come talk to me after five o'clock but until then this is a place of this is a business so um because you know sales people come there's other challenges with working from home you know people trying to sell you things i mean you're home and people are knocking on your door they know you're there they want to sell you something and i know that you know, maybe this is a great product but i have to get some work done and uh, that's i think that's one challenge some people might run into is you know people are at your door and um you know there's house related things or trying to neglect from doing the housework you really want to get done, but it's not the time for that. So yeah, it, but it's got its benefits too. So I love it. Wouldn't change yeah. it. Like Phil said, it does work out. So let's encrypt Phil. How's it going oh, yeah. over there? Um, How do we encrypt Phil? If we're going to let's encrypt Phil. How does that work? 
we we as an organization had our biggest uh, incident uh, recently. This was um, the very end of February up through up through March fifth, and technically, I guess it's still ongoing. Um, so this incident uh, was called a CAA rechecking bug, also known as uh, the mass revocation event. So we'll start off with a couple things. What is CAA? CAA is a type of DNS record that allows a domain owner to specify which certificate authority is allowed to issue certificates for their domain names. Um, this was standardized in 2013 by RFC 6844, and it allows the certificate authority to reduce the risk of unintended certificate misissuance. It's fantastic technology because by default, every public cert certificate authority is allowed to issue certificates for any domain name in the public DNS, provided that they validate control of the domain name. That means if there's a bug in any of the public certificate authorities validation processes, that every domain name is potentially affected. CAA records provide a way for domain holders to reduce that risk. So let's say for lawrencesystems.com, Tom can specify that he only wants wildcard certificates from Let's Encrypt, but he only wants regular non-wildcard certificates from Sectigo. He has that ability. And if there's ever a misissuance event, he can get an email about that. He can also specify multiple certificate authorities that are allowed to issue wildcards and uh, singleton certificates for his domains at his choosing. Um, Bind has support for this unbound. Uh, a lot of the public DNS um, provide uh, public DNS providers do. Um, all you have to do is read the documentation uh, to support. Uh, to see if your DNS server has support for it. So along with CAA, uh, certificate, public certificate authorities have to follow a set of rules from the Certificate Authority Browser Forum, also called uh, CA Browser Forum or the CAB Forum. Um, the specific rule that Let's Encrypt broke is 3.2.2.8. And this rule states that as part of the issuance process, a certificate authority must check for CAA records and follow the processing instructions found for each DNS name in the subject alternate name extension of the certificate to be issued, as specified in the CAA RFC 6844. If the CAA issues a certificate, they must do so within the time to live of the CAA record or eight hours, whichever is great. Cool. Standard rule, standard language. So what happened? Well, in our certificate authority, um, Boulder, it's our free open source software, um, when a certificate request contained n number of domain names that needed CAA rechecking, Boulder would pick one domain name and check that n number of times. 
What this means in practice is that if a subscriber validated a domain name at time X and CAA records for that domain at time X allowed Let's Encrypt to issue certificates, that subscriber would be able to issue a certificate containing domain that domain name until X plus 30 days. Um, even if they later installed CAA records on that domain name that prohibited issuance by Let's Encrypt. Um, so we checked something far too many times without checking all of the domains um, as we should have. Uh, this, was, uh, this was a common Golang pitfall that we accidentally stumbled into. Um, and what this, what the actual impact was, was 2.6% of our active certificates were potentially affected. Uh, that means roughly 3 million certificates. Um, so what, what did we have to do? Well, uh, I can tell you that from the onset of this discovery, uh, we were online pretty much 24 seven. Uh, we rotated uh, team members and developers out uh, so that there was always someone providing community contact, doing research um, on into what actual certificates were affected, doing log analysis so we could get the most accurate number of certificates um, that would have to be revoked because of our buck. Um, so we we first had to detect these we had to detect these domains. We used the, a combination of utilities. Um, one fantastic utility is called ZGrab2. We had to process umpteen uh, gigabytes of logs, um, find all of these all of these potential domain names that went back uh, ninety days, and then. We use ZGrab2 to reach out to these domains and do some initial checking, uh, follow it up with uh, more log analysis. We sent out notifications to subscribers um, as fast as possible. Uh, and what happened was that from the time of this detected bug, we had five days in this instance to revoke potentially these three million certificates. Definitely. 445 were absolutely misissued. Um, we then also had to revoke uh, 1.7 million um, that got replaced uh, within 48 hours. And then for the remaining uh, one plus million certificates um, that didn't get renewed by uh, the community, we chose to uh, we chose to not revoke. And that was the, sorry, we chose to um, not, we chose the misissuance path. Um, so that was the first time in our organization's history that we did that. And uh, we came up with a plan for remediation uh, that goes on every single day that we revoke some certificates. Some certificates will naturally expire at the end of 90 days. And what does this all really mean? Um, and should you still trust Let's Encrypt? Well, that's always up to you, the subscriber. Um, should you trust any public certificate authority? Should we have certificate authorities? Um, I, I personally 
uh, being on the inside, think that we did the best that we could. But for community members, I think it's really worth reading um, our postmortems and minute by minute playback of our community forum contact with uh, people who had affected domains. Um, because this affected people who were on vacation and suddenly they had to renew certificates. Um, and I really think that automation saved the day here because instead of talking about like one or two domains, we're talking about 3 million potential domains. It was, uh, it was, it was huge. I, I think what's important and what I like is frequently these problems are discovered by third-party security researchers who almost are like whistleblowers to go, look what these guys are covering up. And then it becomes a scramble to go, we've been discovered and we have to go fix everything. Um, the fact that you guys self-reported, self-did this uh, and made it very public with a post-mortem is exactly the right response. You know, There's mistakes made in programming every day, um, how we fess up to those mistakes, how we handle it, how they're fixed. Um, and once again, the back-end automation made this I'm not going to say the word painless because that would be wrong, putting up many people. <laughs> oh, it definitely wasn't painless. Uh, right. But it made it like if in like anyone who had to renew certificates from the, from the consumer standpoint, from the end user standpoint, oh, we had to reissue and just pull a re-renew, you know, uh, a force update essentially if it was um, if it was renewed too early and you had this problem. So it was not on the end user standpoint catastrophic. Very challenging on the Let's Encrypt standpoint to make sure like you said, capacity planning, can we handle, can we reissue this many certs and all the things that need to be done to validate all this. Uh, but I, I think the response was proper and adequate and uh, there's always someone gonna be angry, but I wasn't, I was like, well, these, they, they fixed it. They found it, they self-reported, they fixed it, they remediated, they worked and communicate with the uh, greater populace of users that use it and go, oh, this is what happened guys. And that sometimes makes me happy, you know? Cool. I, I learned about it. I learned I also wasn't affected by it. <laughs> Not directly. I completely I completely agree. I mean, I don't I don't think it's reasonable to think that any company is never going to have a problem. That, that a company's never going to have an issue. Um, I I think that's unreasonable. Um, you know, things happen. It's how you respond to it. How transparent is the company? That's what builds trust. And trust is the most important thing with a company like this. And um, yeah, I agree. Being transparent about it. Um, fessing up to it, getting getting it done, rising to the challenge. That's what separates companies that are trustworthy from those that are not. So I think that's very important. Yeah, same. I agree. We're all on your side, Phil. It's not just because we like you. So we have all of these uh, public communications uh, reporting our bug and detailing our remediation plans um, until the natural expiration date, 90 days out from uh, the initial bug discovery of the remaining certificates. Um, and compiling all that information uh, was, I'm not gonna say that it was fun, but it was kind of fun because it was, it was kind of a big data challenge in addition to uh, a systems operation challenge. Um, we definitely learned a lot of lessons and we have implemented tons of remediations and there's more remediations that we're building every single day as, you know, time permits. 
you know, I, I, I like, I know exactly what you're saying where it's not fun, but there is so much that comes out of it. It becomes like interesting or probably the better way. Um, yeah. I, I, in the middle of the day, um, without looking, without reading the details because of my cowboy IT of our own infrastructure at the time, almost two years ago, which has led to so much more documentation. I logged in and mistakenly rebooted a production server that all my staff was using while working on client servers. So it broke all the connections and just rebooted everything in the middle of the day. And um, it was interesting. It was also, how do we get everything back up? What went wrong? Nobody knew what to do. And it led me to learn that they needed to have documentation, as, it, as did I, of how to handle outages of our own infrastructure, which is something they had never encountered before. And the good news is it was self-induced. So I powered it back on and everything came back up. But um, it, all the virtual machines on that hypervisor were broken because they were shut down in a bad state. So uh, I, I now have much better documentation now, two years after that complete moronic incident of, of logging into the wrong iDRAC controller and not reading which one I was logged into and rebooting it. Um, it's yeah, fun is not the right word, but they were kind of, we laughed about it at the end, so I there was that. <laughs> the boss rebooted everything, <laughs> middle of the day. <laughs> Broke the phone system. <laughs> right. Let me guess, there's probably an inside joke that every time something goes wrong, they're probably asking something along the lines of, did Tom reboot something? Yes, yeah, I haven't lived that down. Um, we had two servers, we had a new one and an old one, and the old one was everything's running, and we, I was going to reboot the new one, I logged into the iDRAC. I just, they're one IP address off and I, I, I didn't rename them. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. And I hit reboot. I was actually puzzled why it was on because I thought it was going in there to turn it on. I'm like, that's on. I'll just reboot it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's why it's on. <laughs> it's too late now. Anyways, Tony, what do you got about PenguinCon? All right. Well, with uh, the all the Corona and staying at home, PenguinCon has canceled for 2020. Uh, I believe this was just released today uh, on the 25th. Yep. So cancel. So it's been canceled. And uh, they said if you already have hotel rooms that you booked through, uh, either through PenguinCon or as part of the uh, the block, then uh, the hotel is automatically canceling those reservations. Um, and, uh, but the hotel is uh, all the reservation or the uh, contract that Pegacon has with the hotel for this year, they're, uh, they're just rebooking it for 2021. Um, so then, so they, it's definitely going to be at the same place next year and uh, we'll just move forward from there. Yeah, they had a hard time with it. So I talked to a couple people involved and what was going on was until they had the official lockdown here in Michigan, even though everyone said they couldn't go, they had cancellations, there was all these rules about not having get togethers, uh, they wouldn't let them on their contract. And Penguin has to prepay. It's a nonprofit organization. They had to prepay the contract and then they rely on us buying tickets and showing up at the event to cover the bill so they can prepay next year, kind of a revolving uh, the way the economics work. And they, apparently they weren't going to let them out of the contract, um, mm -hmm. even though with everything going on. It, it was only today what, what it was announced because they finally officially let them out of the contract. Well, they let them out by uh, pushing it off till next year, but it was really interesting. We're actually talking to a couple other 
uh, some of our clients are in the event booking business. So I'm seeing it from both sides, but it's a pretty big disaster for both of them right now. The, the uh, people with the venues don't want to lose the money and give all the refunds because they've already spent it on either improving the facilities or things like that. And the other people are like, well, I can't have my event. I want my money back. And, uh, it's a uh, it's it's a terrible situation on both sides. I'm happy Penguin Con came through on this because you know they they want to continue Penguin Con. They're just going to continue it next year. Yeah, yeah. One thing I noticed when I read that email that they sent is that the board is meeting in a in an internal meeting on the 29th to determine, and and they mentioned something about the possibility of virtual sessions this year. And there's an email address in the email where if, if you have any suggestions or something, you can kind of, you know, you can email them. What I'm going to do on my end is the talks that I was approved to give, I'm going to just send them an email and offer to do it via a live stream on YouTube. And, um, you know, I, I could do it either just as my YouTube channel if they don't want to do anything virtual, but if they do want to do something virtual under the banner of PenguCon, I would love to donate some of my time for that purpose. And maybe for those panelists that are technically savvy enough to be able to do something similar to that, maybe we can still have some kind of PenguinCon this year, even if it is a virtual session, it would obviously be a lot smaller because let's face it, a very small fraction of the panelists would probably do it if they wanna go along with it at all. But I'm going to send them an email probably tomorrow and, and suggest that for my panels if they're interested. And maybe if I do it, maybe other people will follow suit. Maybe we can have some kind of a PenguinCon this, this, uh, some form or fashion this year you know, if possible. I don't know. I'll circle back with you on that, Jay, too. Because I was kind of thinking the same thing. Um, we're using Zoom right now. I have a paid commercial account for Zoom because we've been using it for my business. Uh, so I'm more than welcome to extend that to you as well. And we'll see, maybe we can do that. Cause I think there's, um, me and you could even co-op some stuff on home labbing and things like that. that I think there's a big interest on, uh, for the combination of penguin people, uh, and maybe people from our YouTube. So offline, maybe tomorrow, um, cause I'm exhausted today. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. we'll might be some ideas. Yeah. Let's, let's touch base on that. And then in addition to that, maybe, you know, cause I can't, I can't help everybody, but maybe I could also donate some hours of my time to help the not so technically savvy people get onboarded with some kind of solution to still offer their talk to kind of set them up or help them get, get situated. And then maybe other panelists that know more about the technology could also donate time to help the not so technically savvy because there's, different tracks, you know, there's obviously the technical tracks, but then there's, you know, panelists that are, you know, it's not technical stuff they're doing. Maybe it could be the authors, for example, you know, they're good at writing the books, maybe not so good at setting up a media server. So I think maybe there could, we could maybe hopefully start something um, that'll help and, and maybe they'll go for it. Maybe they won't, but let's work together tomorrow, this weekend, touch base. If there's anything I can do, I would love to do it because PenguinCon has been this event. I know it's a local Michigan event and not, you know, listeners outside of Michigan may not benefit from this, but maybe they will because it's remote. But for me personally, it's been life changing because first of all, it's introduced me to you guys. I would never have known you guys had I not gone to PenguinCon unless we would have met via some other means. Um, so the, the contacts I've made, the things that I've learned from the people there, it's a great, great convention. I would love to see it continue in some form or fashion if we can help. 
Yep. I think there's stuff we can do. As much as I'm a work from home or isolationist, like a few of us here, the other side of it too, I, that's why the cons and other conferences, Linux conferences and such, uh, have some meeting because I do get to meet some interesting people and, uh, you know, that's, that's to me the place to socialize. Absolutely. It, it's just, it's amazing. And, you know, next year they're going to have it. And I, I encourage all of our listeners, even if you're not in Michigan, if you can make the drive here next year, I would do it. Let's show them some love. It, you won't regret it. You'll have a great time. You'll meet a lot of great people. You'll remember it. It'll be awesome. Either way. Yep. Yeah, I agree. So is the, uh, are we going to run out of internet, Tony? That's the next question we have. Oh, running out of the internet. Not really. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the core backbone of the internet is, uh, is all right. But you know what? what ends up happening is there's going to be a bottleneck here and there. And most of the big enterprises, you think most of their employees can work from home and, and it's not bad. But then like we talked earlier, the cloud services, they're all being uh, overloaded with um, more users than they expected where um, Microsoft teams went from 32 million to 44 million people, daily users, uh, you know, Slack, we, I use Slack at work and, and Zoom on here, it's both, uh, uh, they've had to add a lot of resources to, to keep their systems running. Um, and we've talked about, we were talking about that with uh, um, uh, what, uh, capacity planning. And what most capacity planning is, is there's certain times of the day when you expect people, and there's certain times of the day where you expect different people. And uh, with everybody working from home, then everybody is getting on at times that they normally wouldn't have been before. So we're seeing a huge influx of uh, gaming uh, day, during the day and, um, and a few others. And we have at, at my work right now, we have one custom or one client that uh, um, we're running a mitigation for and it's, it like, looks all like clean traffic. Um, and we figured it's just a bunch of people at home gaming now. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, is it BGP replay where you can actually watch some of the routes change? And, you know, there's yeah. the internet's uh, dynamically shifting around the kind of like the behind the scenes is so fascinating to me that there's all these things like people see that oh, my website's on or my website works, but there's so much more that goes into it. It's, be, it's absolutely fascinating. And Tony has like a front seat view of the internet. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool watching it. Um, I, I don't know if you guys saw the news that uh, Netflix started downstreaming or down. Uh, yes. And, and YouTube. the bit rates and oh, YouTube is too. Yeah. Yep. YouTube's uh, starting everything in standard. They went all the way down to standard definition. In a lot of areas you can up it, but they know a lot of people just don't care. And my son's going to be a perfect example. The kid just lets whatever play on YouTube all the time. He's terrible for the, he's terrible. No. So they're like, you just keep getting 480. You're not really watching a video. He listens to his favorite YouTubers. So the resolution suddenly doesn't matter. <laughs> he, he's not a very good netizen, huh? He's a terrible netizen, man. The kids, he's just abusing the internet all over the place. Uh -oh. Got to lessons. Like you're making Tony's job hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things like that. And then, but uh, what I think uh, around uh where we're at in the Metro Detroit area, it's not that big of a deal uh, that uh, home internet 
and our local ISPs. Um, you know, most of the ISPs around here have a pretty good uh, infrastructure, but if you think some of the more outlying areas and um, with, uh, with some of the smaller ISPs that they might not have the back end to be able to support all these people working from home. So that's even another bottleneck. Yeah. But anyway, but yeah, so that, that's basically the, uh, the gist of the, uh, that article that we we're talking about. Well, that's good. Uh, the internet's not going to break. We can have, at least that's not what we're going to panic about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh. Uh, so I threw in, uh, I threw a link in here. We really don't need to talk about it much, but the, it says the U S government is giving bad security advice. Really all it came down to is they said, if it has a green, uh, um, you know, lock next to the thing, then it means you're using HTTPS and you're safe. Well, as we all know, HTTPS just means it's an encrypted connection between you and the server. It does not uh, authenticate who that is running the other end of the server. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's a safe connection. I, and we got Phil over here smiling because he just gives anyone who asks for a certificate a free one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all you have to do is provide uh, proof control. You can have <laughs> your certificate. It is not up to a certificate authority to vet the safety of a website that is better suited for the browser itself. Yes. Phil <laughs> is the Oprah of certs. You can have a cert. You can have a cert. Everybody gets a cert. <laughs> I, now, I did use GIMP to make a meme of so, something like that during the revocation event. I said, uh, you get a brand new cert. You get a brand new cert. <laughs> <laughs> we speak in memes. I speak in memes to my 13-year-old son. It, it's a better way to communicate, <laughs> at least to him. <laughs> Right. And then one last link that, uh, Tom, you, you sent out to us all earlier, uh, that you can now track the coronavirus stats from your command line. Now, this looks, it looks pretty cool, huh? the, the different options they have available and stuff to be able to track it. And uh, I'm trying to think of, of what kind of uh, use case we have, because everybody has a desktop. You can get to a website. But um, um, you're able. To... Go you ahead. Do, I think it'd be kind of cool because now you can script it and do your own comparison and analysis. Really, just morbid curiosity. In the most yeah. literal sense of that term. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's um. It's a, it's interesting. It, it's it, but it has a nice uh, layout. You know, you can view it's in a grid and uh, you know like a spreadsheet type layout, and you can do different sorts and different searches. Um, I'm assuming you'd be able to just uh, export it out into some way, and then maybe keep your own set of uh, data points. Like you said, either create historical uh, analysis or, or something else. I was trying to think if there's a way that I could work this into my magic mirror and have the stats running at the bottom of the mirror. But then I'm, I'm like, that might be a little too morbid for my morning wake up. Yeah, that's that's my problem. Is I think when I messaged you guys, I said, now the command line's going to depress me. It's the one place that wasn't depressed. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Yeah, so I, I mean, I, it, I think it's value. Um, I like the fact that there's more and more tools like this that can help uh, pull and aggregate stats together because there are people who are um, using data analytics to help fight this, and we're realizing uh, we can look, and there's been a couple articles written about this, where if we start really looking at data analytics, like uh, people's geolocation based on their phone, are they actually social distancing properly? Uh, we can actually help in some way from a technology standpoint, uh, help reduce the pandemic. Like, look, we can see you're all together. You look like a traffic jam on the Google Maps here. So if everyone could just step up at least six more feet apart and uh, we'll slow this down because there is a, you know, it is a uh, exponential math equation when you talk about reducing a pandemic. There's been a lot of, uh, there's a couple good um, science channels on it. Uh, Kurt Sagog, in a nutshell, has a good breakdown of uh, what the coronavirus is and the statistics behind it. And uh, SciShow has also done some mathematical uh, talkings on the coronavirus. And mm. you know, it, it, these, this is actually where that math equation you learned in high school and algebraic equations make sense, especially exponential mathematics, to understand how to actually reduce the coronavirus. You know, folding at home helps us understand the virus itself. Just getting people to stay at home is the goal of some of these other uh, tools. All right. That's my rant on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, one more follow-up. Uh, we were talking about the uh, PF. Um, what was that process again? I'm looking. PF Purge. PF Purge. Yes, I found out what PF Purge is. It's uh, part of the PF firewall, that, like the BSD PF firewall, and that's what PFSense runs. Uh, PF Purge is uh, the process that purges old states. Huh. Uh, so the problem is when PF Purge hangs up, then I think it has to restart the PF firewall, and that's why all your connections drop. Um, why is it hanging up? Maybe you are exceeding there. And this is a, this is a system tunable option. You can increase the number of state tables you have. I mean, I, I find it hard pressed with that, uh, CPU engines that you would exceed it. Um, but there are limitations out of the box with PF sense for how many state tables you can have. And that number increases with larger, more powerful systems. It, it's flexible, but you can also override defaults in there. So maybe look if there's a way to increase the number of state tables. Um, maybe that's what's causing it. it. It it purges. It should state tables go stale and should just fall off. And I imagine that's what PF purge is handling. They'll also have to be removed if you exceed a number. If you have a fixed number of state tables, some process by which, well, you have this many, we're going to take some of the oldest ones because state tables will reestablish, unfortunately, at, your, at the expense of breaking your live stream sometimes um, mm. or whatever you're working on. So maybe that's where to start looking and see if there's a way to increase number of state tables. It, it, it is a system tunable option, I believe, in the menus under... Is it miscellaneous advanced? If you look for how to system tunables on the PFSense documentation, it tell you where to set all those. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm really surprised that you'd be running into this kind of problem with your house. You have two people that live there. Although one thing that does have a lot of states is uh, torrenting. So if you're like hosting uh, some... Uh, Free open source host, software torrents. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, that has a lot of connections. Uh, or if you're going to Facebook a lot, that has a lot of connections. 
Yeah, when I when I torrent uh, and seed very popular free and open source things that I seed, there are definitely the number of state tables is uh, incredibly higher on there. It is the most mm -hmm. taxing thing my system will do. <laughs> my PF sense, anyways. Could try limiting the number of connections you support on your torrent software. Like like there should be a way to you know lower that a bit just to see if it helps you. Or you could just increase the limit to a crazy number and see if you can cause the problem. Because if you could cause the problem, then you definitely know that it is the problem. Just a thought. Thanks, guys. I am yeah. currently checking this out right now. Here, I can. Uh, I mean, I, I found the docs. Don't worry. Did you? Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty well documented how to tune all of those. So there's a handful of system tunables you adjust, uh, even with HP proxy. Uh, if you really want to scale up HA proxy inside of PFSense, there's a few system tunables you'll have to adjust to handle it. But you know, pretty cool that it's all built in. And I, I let you, you none of this when I say system tunables, none of this requires command line. They have a section in the web interface where you can just make adjustments. But you might want to wait until we're done with the show. <laughs> yeah, don't <laughs> well if Phil if Phil disappears, he made the adjustment the wrong way. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I think we've come to the end of the show. And uh, so you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. Uh, this has been episode 321, 321. Working from home. We're working one, from 127001. <laughs> That's right. So if you'd like to hear, if you like what you heard, you want to hear some more. Uh, send us some packets. Feel free to contact us at sml or at show at smlr.us. And if you'd like to hear some more, or if you'd like to get some stickers, uh, email us. What did you write in here, Phil? If you like some S some Sony Linux review stickers for your laptop or beer fridge contact us ah i saw beer and i got uh, excited and couldn't read anymore i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> speaking of beer this is it's getting I, late yeah yeah it is <laughs> uh anyway so it's been great you guys and uh, i think uh doing this over uh zoom today uh worked out pretty good yep all right well thank you You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>